like those relationships and the depth and quality of the, the relationships that you have with your people, your team members, that should be central to your life. And that will yield happiness and, and I believe will also yield growth. Welcome to the Resilient Recruiter Podcast. This is your host, Mark Whitby, and I am delighted to be joined today by Mark Phillips. Mark first got into recruiting in the late 90s, same as me, and has specialized in the education technology industry since 2006. He launched his own firm in 2010, and by 2019, it built it into a $4 million per year business. As a member of Sanford Rose Network, Mark has coached and developed his recruiters to success, including having three rookies of the year, two top recruiters in the network, and multiple top 10 in the network performances. His firm recruits for education companies, so not schools, but companies that sell products and services to pre-K, K-12, and higher education institutions. Mark, welcome. Thanks for being here. Hey, so glad to be here, Mark. Thank you for having me, and uh, thanks for that uh, introduction. My pleasure. So I should hopefully be able to remember your name, at least. Um, <laughs> and uh, apparently, it's derived from Marcus and has something to do with Mars, the Roman god of war. Do you know anything about that? I had no idea. Oh yeah, uh, but I'm going to tell people. I'm going to tell people that now. It's like exactly. <laughs> You're supposed to be like a war, warlike, or something. I don't know, uh, something silly like that. But uh, my my father was a Baptist minister, so I'm 99% certain it was because there right. was an apostle named Mark. Of course, there is. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. of course. <laughs> that is a logical explanation. So um, yeah, yeah. Listen, we. You were introduced to me by our mutual friend, Jordan Rayboy, and Jordan yes. is a very great friend of the podcast. He's been on the show twice himself, and he's referred multiple guests to us, and always have they been of the highest quality. So uh, really looking forward to this. How do you know Jordan? Well, probably like most folks, I, I first encountered Jordan just through some of his training, right? Um, I mean, there was... Um, there were a number of videos that I saw, you know, sort of at some point along my career that, you know, talked about excellence, that talked about performance, that talked about planning. I remember the the power planning uh, uh, video that I watched very well. And and I think I still show that to my people on a, a pretty regular basis. And then, um, oh, well, I, I also should say that, like, just his story, uh, his very non-traditional uh, approach to business, a story of being on the on the bus and out, you know, in the mountains, and and really, you know, sort of structuring work around a life that he wanted to live and enjoy. That really appealed to me. I've always, you know, probably like a lot of recruiters, thought of myself as a, a little bit uh, outside the mainstream, a right. little, little bit of a nonconformist. So that right. really appealed to me. And then he um, he came to speak at a. Uh, one of the first SRA uh, gatherings after we joined, and I think we joined in 2014, 13 or 14. Um, and he and I just hit it off. I, I just feel like in a lot of ways we're, we're kindred spirits. And um, it's just been really interesting to see how our lives and how our businesses um, have, have tracked and encountered similar things. So I just always feel like he's... Um, He's somebody uh, I can approach uh, at a really intimate level with business or with life issues, questions, uh, um, or, you know, and, the, and I think the reverse is true too, or the, you know, he has the ability to sort of approach me with the same, 
the same uh, for the same kinds of inputs. Amazing. Yeah, he's just such a a super guy and um I've definitely benefited from from the association. Um you mentioned something about recruiters being nonconformist and that's not something I've ever heard articulated before but it did resonate for me. Could you say more about that? Like what do you what are you basing that on? I guess maybe just just my experience, my own experience, my own lived experience, but then my experience hiring people um, and seeing people sort of come through, uh, come into and come th- through this career. And I, it just, it feels like, it feels like a job category um, that you don't need a lot of pre-qualifications for, right? I mean, True. Um, you, you, um, at the end, I've heard somebody in my career say that that's true of most services. Um, but you know, it, it really kind of, it's a far more individual pursuit than a lot of careers, or at least a lot of the careers that we sort of engage with as headhunters, right? I mean, I'm working yes. with candidates who have 20, 25, 30 year careers in the education technology sector, and they've taken a very different path than I have. And, you know, I can, um, there's just something really responsive about a career in recruiting financially, uh, professionally, um, from a, a work life standpoint, right? I mean, you can, um, it's, it's like fishing. It's like you could go and work a hundred hours a week for a summer and then take the rest of the year off and have a really successful recruiting practice. If that's what you wanted, you could recruit 20 hours a week, uh, if you wanted and have a very successful recruiting practice, like it just, it, it just feels like it's a, it's a career that, that, um, that can take whatever shape you want. And I think it attracts people who, um, who appreciate that, who for whatever reason felt like they knew better or they didn't fit in more traditional environments. And, you know, I studied poetry. I was a, a lit major and um, graduated cool. in the in the recession in the early 90s. So like, like my, even my education, you know, coming out of high school and my educational endeavors, I just, I felt like I was different. And there was just something about recruiting that felt like it scratched that itch and continues to, you know, these many years later. That is so interesting, Mark, because I I am going to reflect on that because I have always felt different, like a bit of an outsider. And um, but I've I I didn't really necessarily even think of that same uh, mindset applying to people who are attracted to recruiting. Um, I certainly feel that it is a common trait of people who decide to go it on their own and start up their own firm. Yeah. Um, with, you know, no doubt, but maybe even all recruiters to some extent are, you know, break the mold a little bit. It does, it, it does attract a colorful cast of characters and, um, personalities. So yeah, there it might does. Be something and, and, if, and it makes sense, right? I mean, we have, and it, it could be true of just sales careers in general. I probably need to sort of think about that before I make, you know, before I make even, even more sweeping statements, but like we have to do stuff that captures people's attention and, 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 
seduces people to engage in a relationship with us. And, you know, with all the noise in the world, like they're, we're competing with, we're competing with an infinite number uh, of inputs that people are getting. So it kind of makes sense to me. Like there's, there's Mm. something, you know, we want to engage with people that, that are interesting to us. Yeah. But I almost feel, I wonder if that in some ways for me is a handicap. Like if I don't, because I don't uh, build rapport with people on the basis of having common interests or experience, right? Which, um, you know, I, I connect with people on a, like as one human to another and try and find totally. that common ground. But I can't talk about, like, the, like I live in Scotland, but I do not play golf. I don't watch football or soccer, as you guys know yeah. it. I don't drink uh, at all. So drinking scotch doesn't appeal to me. So like <laughs> finding things to talk about with people, I I immediately have to discard the standard things that people would find to talk about with each other. And that's very nonconformist. That's, that's kind of, I, yeah. I think, I, I feel like maybe you're, uh, you're a great example of, of the dynamic that I'm trying to um, uh, describe. And I, you know, I think about one of the first really sort of big relationships that I cultivated um in, in my current industry in education technology. And there's, uh, uh, there's a guy who's a dear friend now, his name's Brett. He, he's been to my wedding and, uh, we, we vacationed, uh, my wife and I have vacationed with he and his wife. Um, he's, he, I, not to get poli- too political, but you know, I tell people, uh, I'm left to Bernie, right? And if you are, <laughs> if you are aware of American politics, you're aware that that's that's a little bit. Of, there's a little bit of shock value to saying that, but I also, right. uh, you know, it's probably true. Like if you like took a policy card, um, that's funny, especially for a business person to say that as well. Like puts you in your own little category. Uh, yeah, and and I'm dealing with people who uh, who are. Absolutely not left to Bernie, and I'm thinking of Brett, and I'm thinking about a conversation that he and I had when I uh, when when I first met him, and it was the first time we got together together uh, for dinner. I think he, I think he was my first client. I think he was, you know, somebody I cold called. I made two placements; they were really good placements. He was impressed with me. I was, you know, far younger than I am now, and that was a big deal to me. So I said, "Hey, let's get for, together for dinner." We did, and we had this kind of authentic connection like you described like we didn't talk about sports you know didn't you know weren't talking about you know a lot of golf a lot of the things that often populate business discussions and at some point he called me a pinko (laughs) and he he said it with with affection and and it was just really wonderful and i think that's such a great example of um how how I like to engage in relationship with people, and I think that's you know that makes me a really good recruiter. And I it sounds like it sounds like you have a really similar kind of way. Like, I, it's interesting. I we as recruiters we we're asking people very intimate questions about their lives sure. very early in a relationship. Like I'm asking them how much money they make, or, or actually not not so much that anymore, but given legal restrictions, but I'm engaging in a, a very personal conversation about their income Yes, within minutes of meeting them. Like that, that means I have to be, 
I have to send signals of trustworthiness. I have to send signals of authenticity. Like this isn't, I'm not just using this information to, you know, as a lever for something else. Like, and I, I don't know. I think the good recruiters, like that's a, that's a superpower for them, for us, for you, for me, like our ability to um, maybe avoid traditional trappings of interests and really get at the heart of like the people. <laughs> and mm. um, so, I, I, yeah. Okay. I'd like to follow this thread because I was, this is not on my list of things to ask you about today, but yeah. since it's come up, like, how do you do that? Like, what, what is your approach to building trust with people quickly and creating that connection so that they do feel comfortable opening up to you and talking about their ambitions, their issues in their current situation, what they're happy with, what they're not happy with, and, you know, then allowing you to guide them to something potentially better? It's interesting. I, I think that I don't know if it's going to be a super organized response. So uh, I think you have to have a real keen ear for defensiveness. Hmm. And you have to, like, you have to, you have to immediately be aware if you have asked a question in a way that's, you know, that that's pushing somebody into a defended territory and you just got to be you just have to have a real knack for communicating asking a question communicating the the information asking a follow-up maybe pushing them a little bit you have to have a keen ability to do that without it while also saying hey we're we're in this together like i don't mm. win I don't win if you don't win. Like, you know, it's the classic right. sort of sales concept of win-win. I don't, I don't really, yes. like that's not in, my, in the front of my consciousness when I'm um, talking with folks, but, but it's certainly a dynamic that I'm, I'm 100% engaged in all the time. And mm. like, there's just, there's so many bad actors in the world. Think about the email. Yeah. Think it's just, just about like, navigating your inbox, like how much, how, how quickly you have to decide, oh, that's not worth my time. Yeah. Oh, that's spam or, or it's not spam, but you know, I'm not, I, that's, there's a, te there's 10 minutes. I'm not going to get back if I answer it. <laughs> so, yes. so like, we're just, we're just flooded with stuff that we're half having to measure against our, our personal interest all day long. And I have to assume that that's true for, for everybody that's on the other end of the call, the other end of the Zoom. And I just have to be really good at keeping an ear for it and quickly backing away and saying, hey, just heads up, sounded like that landed wrong. I want to make sure that I'm you know, operating as an agent for you because if I'm not, this doesn't work. Um, so you can, t you can have any answer that you want and we can decide, you know, we could decide on a, a universe of outcomes of this conversation, but I just, you know, I just need to know that, uh, I need you to know that I'm not successful here unless you're successful. So I don't want this to feel like this is the Mark show. I use that language a lot. I don't want you to feel like this is a Mark show. I use it internally with my team. I use it when I'm hiring people, and I also that's a that's specific language that I use in recruiting calls. Does that mm. does that get toward an answer to your question? 
it does. And, and it sounds like it's a combination of just sort of natural, you know, innate, um, desire to, and curiosity and interest in people. But then you, you mentioned there's some language patterns that you use and you shared one of them, like, this isn't the Mark show. This is about me being your agent and us, you know, uh, this has to work for you. Are there any other shortcuts or structures or uh, phrases that you find helpful in order to create that rapport? If you listen to rec call recordings of mine, um, probably 75% of the statements that I make, I follow up with, how does that feel? How does that land? Give, give me some feedback. Um, does that make sense? Like I'm constantly, I, I feel like I'm, the pattern is very, is very much kind of baby stepping, um, into toward whatever objective. Like I don't have, you know, I don't have this kind of waterfall, you know, start here. And at the end you get a qualified candidate <laughs> who's, who's, or, or, you know, or a signed contract. It's not, it's not really sort of explicit, but I do feel like you take baby steps and you confirm that you're on the same page at every point. So I think that's like, tell me more is another really good one. Um, that's, that's especially when they're talking, I, I use that a lot. Tell me more or, or even I do this with my family a lot. And sometimes they tease me, um, when somebody, when somebody else has the talking stick, um, I'll say, Hmm, <laughs> you know, and just leave it there. Just, Hmm. And people, people like to talk. Um, yeah. People like to talk and they like to feel like you're interested in them. And hmm, it's just this kind of rich statement of interest in what they're saying and how they're saying it and what they might have to say next. So those are those are some other um, tools that I think are on on in pretty regular rotation with me. Um, I those are the ones that are, that are that are yeah. Come no, no, that's mind. good. That's good. And. Um... You mentioned call recording. Is that something you do for as part of your either personal development or teaching your team members? We do. Um, we do. Uh, mm. As as you well know, and I'm sure most of your guests will know, call recording is is a legally complicated um, uh, issue in the United States. There are multiple states and even different. Um, municipalities that have uh, different policies, different laws surrounding call recording. So um, we do have call recording on all the time, but we don't, we don't announce. <clears throat> mm -hmm. I, I probably, I don't even know if I should be saying this publicly. We don't <laughs> announce that the, we don't, we don't announce that the calls are being recorded and we never like the, it's, it's literally just for us to sort of review and learn from. It's not definitely. Um, I think it's so, so valuable. Um, and we, we actually have a relationship with a, a company and I'm, uh, I'm going to need to rack my brains to remember what they're called, but they had a really cool software platform where they record all your calls and like they integrate with whatever ring central or whatever cloud-based, um, VoIP 
platform you're using. And um, they allow you to analyze those calls, but using AI so that you don't have to literally listen to every call. Because if you've got a team of four or five people on the phone all day, you don't you know, you couldn't wade through the, all those calls, right? But what it does is, first of all, it transcribes every call and looks for keywords. And it will then tell you, for example, in Mark's call today with Bob, um, Mark was talking 72% of the time and Bob was talking 28% of the time. That's the, the ratio should be the other way around, right? Uh, so, or how many open questions he asked or key phrases that you've told the AI to look out for. Like, yep. uh, and so then it will bring calls to your attention that it thinks you should listen to. But the goal really is to accelerate people's development so that they get to hear like the greatest hits of Mark Phillips um, and what a good call sounds like and and uh, have multiple examples of that. And then, of course, the reverse is also useful so people can get coaching and and all, even self-coaching on listening back to a call that didn't work out and then trying to figure out what should I have said differently or what other question could I have asked that might have you know, been more productive here. And um, I just think it's such a valuable uh, resource. And it's like, if you're doing it just on Ring Central, it's free, right? It's just uh, an, a free training resource that's really, really useful. So I've looked at a couple of those tools. One is gong.io. Okay. And I think the other one is called chorus.ai um, okay. maybe. Um, and I, that's on my list for, uh, next calendar year. It's a, it's a big enough expense, um, that, yes. uh, that I just didn't, I hadn't budgeted for it this year. And we're really focused on, on hiring and <clears throat> building out some training capabilities this year. So it's, I love the idea and the demos that I've seen of the product get me really excited. You know, I, I sort of spin off into all the possibilities that could come from it. Um, and I think, um, I should say that that you know next next year my primary job will be becoming will be opening new markets. Um, so that's a shift that's happening in uh, in our company right now, and I think that kind of resource when you're opening new markets, like a lot of those business development calls, a lot of those initial recruiting calls are going to be mine because I'm trying to figure out what is this, where's the juice, you know, what's, what's, what's the real opportunity in this new market. And maybe there's none I've had, I've expanded into a couple different markets where there wasn't a there, there. Um, and so having a resource like gong or, or chorus or whatever tool, um, like that, I think that's awesome. I, yeah, I'm really excited about it. We just we just didn't we chose not to spend money on this year, but it's absolutely top of list for next year. Cool. Uh, those are good uh, resources, and I'm going to need to rack my brains while we're talking to figure out the name of um, the company that may be worth you checking out as well. Richard Smith is the well, it's like the, the business development director and and co-founder. So. They wrote a great book, which we should mention as well. The book is called Problem Prospecting. There's not an audible version yet, unfortunately, but on Kindle, check out Problem Prospecting. Uh, the company is uh, Allego or Allego, A-L-L-E-G-O.com. Awesome. So add that to your list of, uh, of demos. 
Video interviewing has been part of mainstream recruitment for over a decade now, but have you figured it out yet? Video interviewing certainly looks good as part of your recruitment service. It gives you the appearance of being a cutting edge recruitment business owner on the front line of technology. But is it paying its way? Are you getting more new business, more repeat business because you're using video interviewing? Or is it starting to look more like a financial drain on your recruitment business? Our sponsor and trusted partner, iIntro, has a solution for this. Their video interviewing is just one part of a complete suite of recruitment tools, so you don't need to spend a fortune on yet another tech platform. Everything you need is included in one package. Additionally, they provide training for your recruitment firm to make sure you're using the technology to the best possible effect for your existing clients, as well as how to use it to attract new clients. If you're thinking of investing in video interviewing, don't take another step until you've requested your free demonstration from iIntro. Just go to recruitmentcoach.com forward slash retain to book your free consultation. See for yourself how to use video interviewing to get a true return on your investment. That's recruitmentcoach.com forward slash retained. Mark, um, I'd love to know, like, I guess first big question is growing a firm from nothing to $4 million run rates. Could you talk me through that journey and how you achieve that? Because that's fantastic. And most, well, that most people never are able to pull that off. So I'm really interested to hear how you did it. We... So like, like a lot of firm owners, I was just a really good recruiter and I was, you know, I, I thought enough of myself that I, that I I thought I could do it better. And so I started my own firm. Right. So, but at my heart, in my, at my core, like I'm a producer. And I think that's true of a lot of uh, recruiting firms. And I think that's why, that's why a lot of recruiting firms don't sort of break that event horizon, right? Yes. For me, for me, that um, that threshold was right at about a million bucks, just under a million bucks. And we, like from 2010 to 2013, maybe 14, um, like we got, we got up to the high 100, so just under a million, and we kind of stuck there. And I, um, I knew... I knew that I wanted to build when I started the firm. I knew I wanted to build a firm that would attract and keep people like me, right? I didn't I felt like there was there was something that I could do as a firm owner that would make it um whether it was comp or lifestyle or responsibility or making investments in growth or whatever. I just I knew that I wanted to build a company that would attract really good producers and then not lose them to starting their own firm. Um, But I kind of hit a wall around a million bucks. I had had some early training from Jeff Kay um, and Karen and Nick, and this was pre-SRA. I went to, in fact, this was right after I started my firm. I went to a Next Level Exchange owners forum, I think they called it at the time. And that was a central part of their message. It's like, how how do you grow a firm that attracts and retains top producers. Um, so I took a lot of their lessons and a really big one that I remember early on was hiring, th- hiring threes. Remember the rule of threes. So don't just hire one because then you get over leveraged and over committed to somebody and you just don't, you can't sort of flex and, you know, not everybody, this job is weird and, and you're going to be taking risks on people and, 
hiring based on aptitude. So you just need, you need a volume play the same way that you need a volume play when you're making a placement, right? You need multiple yeah. candidates in for a gig. You need multiple candidates as you're building your firm because not everybody is going to love it and not everybody's going to be good at it. So that was a really big early lesson that I Im- implemented and, you know, and, and then there, there were others from the perspective of comp plans, from the perspective of, you know, another core message that uh, that crew, Jeff and crew talked about was uh, being market masters. And my industry was really perfect for, for that. It's a relatively small industry. Um, you know, I, I don't feel like we fully, I don't feel like I can say to you with 100% certainty, this is my addressable market. But I think that it's about 2,000 companies. And right now we have 300, between 300 and 500 contracts that we've signed in the entirety of our history. So if, if those numbers hold up, and if we assume that all of those contracts really are you know, sort of customer engagement, then I'm, about, I'm at about 25% market penetration. You know, yes. I probably can't be much more than 50%, um, otherwise there aren't sources, right? So Jeff, Jeff and crew really suggested be a market master, be, you know, be the, you know, own your space. And so we started messaging that um, to clients and that, that was good at getting us up to a million. Um, and, and I kind of, like I said, I, I think we had two years where we were, you know, we kind of plateaued, like we got up to, you know, eight, 900,000 kind of plateaued there. Um, and I went back to an owner's forum like, hey, guys, I put all the stuff that I learned into, into play that got me here, but, I, but it's not getting me to the next level. And um, that's when they pitched me on joining the SRA network. And I think they, I think they being uh, the K, K Bassman and uh, Next Level Exchange organization bought the SRA network in like 2012, took a little while to sort of figure it out. And then they decided you know, we want growth minded recruiters, you know, um, and, and I fit that mold. And so they, they, I was at the owner's forum. They took me out, said, Hey, this is what we're doing. You know, we're trying to attract people like you. Would you sign up? It took me six months to decide to do that. Um, and so then they became a really big part of my thought leadership. And so all those rules that I had, you know, the rule of three and be a market master and decide how you want to architect your firm, those were all still in play. And I think what got me from a million to a 4 million run rate was starting to, we implemented a partner program. Um, We got really, we offered people the opportunity to uh, earn a partner title uh, by, uh, by with production. Um, and I think at the time it was, I think at the time it was $400,000 a year in annual production. If you're billing, if you bill 400, you get the title partner and we celebrate you. We announced that to our market. So that has some benefit to them as they're talking with candidates and clients. Um, and then, 
Um, uh, and that meant, and then we did partner retreats. Um, we, uh, we, we were at the place that we were, um, making, we were offering partnership, meaning true ownership in the company that was tied to being a partner title. We were at that level when things fell apart. That was, and things fell apart just, uh, for context, uh, at the end of really at the end, they were kind of falling apart January of 2019. And then, um, you know, by May, uh, they really fell apart. And by August I was back to being a single producer. Um, so that's, there's a, there's a rich story there, but just a couple more bullet points on the, on the path from one to one to four. Um, we had a part, we got a partner program, which we believed was, uh, a strong incentive for producers we uh, got really rigorous about hiring um, regularly. We had very defined territories that allowed us to hold people accountable to territory coverage. Um, and is that we, a geographic territory or is it a sort of uh, sub-niche within the education technology space or how, what, how do you define a territory? Okay. Both. So we, we divided, we looked at our database, we, we went back and looked at deals and we kind of saw some patterns and, you know, our, our industry has a pretty neat separation between companies that make money from K-12 institutions and companies that make money from higher ed institutions. There's a little bit of overlap, but really not less than 10%, right? Um, so that was that was a really easy division to make. We're going to have a higher ed team and we're going to have a K-12 team. And K-12 does pre-K and higher ed does adult learning. But we those were really peripheral kind of businesses. And then I think originally we structured, we created three different territories. And, and honestly, like the business logic, not to get way too in the weeds, but this might be interesting for folks as they're considering territories. Um, the business logic was how do I ensure, like how many companies can I assign to a recruiter uh, and make sure that they're touching them at least once a quarter? And right. I, I think we did the math. I, this, is, this is sort of digging deep, deep in the archives, but <laughs> I think we did the math and we're figuring, hey, if you're just doing five outbound uh, connections with companies per day, that equaled somewhere between two and 300 companies. And, and, and then you're doing, you're covering all those companies over the course of the quarter. Again, I don't hold me to the math, but I think it ended up being about two, two to 300 per. So we assigned, we looked at where those existed. Then we created uh, geographical um, boundaries. The first swipe that we took at that was, was a little weird because we're very, our industry, you know, really traces back to publishing companies and they're very coastal, right? Yes. I was going to say, like, isn't there going to, like, the person who gets New York as a territory or San Francisco as a territory, they're going to be, have a disproportionate concentration of technology companies, right? Yes. Um, we didn't have anybody living in those territories. So there wasn't like a, an, 
une- uh, an, an unfair advantage that you could go out and meet with all those people in New York. But we did we did structure it around that way. So there might have been, I, again, just making it up, there might have been 200 companies between New York and Boston, but there also might have been 200 companies in all of the Midwest and all of the Southeast. And that's how we shaped right. our territories. So it was really, we had the industry, K-12 higher ed, and then we had you know, we had a grouping of companies um, that that ensured that people could touch them once every quarter. Um, there's some pros and cons there, um, and we're we're in. That will be that is an issue that we are confronting again now. And frankly, I think most any growing firm they're going to be kind of addressing that issue probably twice a year um, just because you want you want coverage but you also want to reward hustle and you want to reward production um, exactly yeah yeah so you want you want to provide enough protection for your people but not so much that they just feel entitled to it and they don't they're not really working it so it's a there's there's always push and pull and um, but that's how that's how that played out for us to get from one to four. Um, let me think if there's another. So to recap, and by the way, when we talked to the beginning about, um, building rapport, one of the things that occurred to me in terms of being a good conversationalist is first of all, recapping on what the other person has said and make sure you understood correctly. And then secondly, signposting where you'd like to structure the conversation next. So the three biggest things you shared were like market mastery and number two is um hiring in threes so that you know because it takes the same amount of time to train three people as it does to train one person but you're giving yourself a 300 percent better chance that at least one of them is going to work out right and then if you lose one or two out of three then your whole training process hasn't been completely wasted and then the thirdly was structuring the way that you reward people and promote people to create retention and and um, keep your your best producers. Was there anything that I missed? And then just having kind of an organized approach to your market, I guess that that might fall under the market mastery category. It probably does. Um, the one other thing that I'll add that just uh, occurred to me is I also hired an assistant. Um, who has is now has been with me the longest of any any employee, um, and um, it, she I she's being promoted to CEO January first. Um, oh, fantastic! So, yeah, so that's a big that's yeah. a big move for our business, but it really has its roots in kind of understanding what what some people do well and what others don't do well. I have never probably like most headhunters. Um, like the operational details of the business are I, I like there's there are very few things that bore me as much as that you know and and very few yeah. things that I have you know I feel like I've I've uh, I can do a lot of things really well like like the operational details are not my strong suit and so I acknowledging that putting somebody trustworthy. Like when I hired Katie, um, and this was back in 2014, and that may sound weird because I said I lost everybody, and I'll explain that in a minute if you want. Um, but um, 
when I hired her, I said, your first job is to manage me. <laughs> and, <laughs> okay. and, and your second job is to manage my inbox. Like I do not want right. to be in my emails, um, but I need to know that important stuff that's coming into email is being addressed. That's uh, okay. So two things about this. Number one, um, if you have not read Rocket Fuel by Gina Wickman, it's definitely worth reading. Gina, you know that book already? I or? do. I do. And we, uh, we, use a, we use EOS to a very large yeah. degree. That's the framework for okay. our leadership meetings, for sure. Great. Yeah, we, we love EOS. Um, my friend, Joel Slanning, and I run a mastermind group for owners who have firms who want to scale called Apex. And um, some of, like, we do borrow and uh, some principles in terms of strategy and structure from EOS. But uh, I can totally, when I read Rocket Fuel, I, I was like, oh my goodness, like, this is so true. Like, I do not personally have all of the skills and competencies and, and um, interests that are required to really grow a company. And I need somebody else to help me. And th so that person for me is my colleague, Leanne, who has very complementary skills to me. And of course, there's overlap and, and there's things that we're both good at, but there's definitely things she's good at that I am not. Um, so so I totally get where you're, you're coming from. The other thing I was interested in that you said was someone to manage your inbox. And that's not Leanne's job. She's got her, you know, uh, uh, but that is Rachel's job. And I do not meet many people who out, who delegate that. And uh, I just don't understand why you like every business owner doesn't have somebody at least doing triage on their inbox and clearing out everything that you don't need to see and highlighting the ones that are like, okay, this client needs to be responded to and this thing needs to be handled um, and get it from like 200 messages a day down to at least like the top 15 or so that you need to do something with. How long have you been doing it that way? So that was probably, I think Katie started in 2014. Interestingly, she is not in my inbox now. Um, I yeah. am not, I am not in deals nearly to the degree now that I was then. Um, and that was the biggest risk then was that, you know, embed it lost in the, all the spam and lost in, um, team communications and things like that. A deal, a client, an urgent need with a client would, would escape my grasp or escape yeah. my view. So, um, I'm I'm back in my inbox now, um, but that was a really that was a really key part. Like having somebody that I trusted operationally was really key from getting to to one to four million. Um, mm. And frankly, it will probably be part of getting back to four million under Katie's leadership as CEO. We will probably need to get her somebody. Uh, Yes. At that level. I'm guessing that that's that 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 could happen as soon as next year for sure. Yeah, Katie is gonna need her own assistant for sure to yeah. uh, be able to manage everything coming at her. Um so just quickly on uh Sanford Rose, uh I've had a Sanford Rose guy on the show before, Yosef Kolish. Do you know Yosef? Yeah, I love Yosef. Yeah, I've been in a couple Great small groups guy. with him. Yep. Okay. Um, and, uh, so he's someone who, and he and I, 
you know, chat once in a while and, and shoot messages back and forth. And we actually have a couple of um, SRA members in our coaching program as well. Uh, so shout out to Dan Toussaint uh, and Kunji Sido, uh, both awesome individuals uh, who I uh, am privileged to work with. Um, so you described, you, you hinted at a huge upheaval in 2019 because you'd been on this path of growth and really huge success, like to get from scratch to 4 million in itself. And just to clarify, is that all permanent billings or do you do any contract or temporary stuff? No contract, uh, no contract, all permanent placement. 4 million in net fee income uh, is phenomenal. Um, what happened in 2019? So 20, 2018, 2018, we did 3.4 million, I believe. Um, and I had, you know, three, three partners uh, in place. Um, and, but, but I was not sleeping well. <laughs> I was drinking way too much. I was smoking way too much. My, you know, I like, I was really unhappy. Right. Mm. Um, it was really a stressful environment. And I don't believe that it was just the stress that came from all of the work. It really there was there were there were really significant cultural issues uh, at play. And I was trying to figure it out. Um, and it was clear that we were at a place then that um, that the business was the business was very successful. The team was very independent. And I think it, I, I think there, this question of like, what's next was in front of us. Um, and I had an answer for that, that, you know, I needed to be true for me and my income and my ambitions for the firm. And, and the team had uh, answers for that question that were different than mine and we just couldn't align that's you know that's probably the simplest way to say it and i was not i was not flexible enough to either like i i could either stick to my guns and keep pushing for what i wanted <laughs> i could you know be laissez faire and let them do what they wanted or i could uh I could engage as leaders often need to and really engage in a, in a persuasive effort with my team and move them in a, or define a shared direction. And really, um, you know, when I, when I sort of think back about that time, I, I really feel like, um, the reason it fell apart was because I, approached it from a, my, my way or the highway kind of approach. And the first, mm -hmm. <laughs> the first, uh, partner on the highway happened in January and that was my choice. Um, I felt like that was the right move, uh, for the company, for the culture. Um, so I asked, uh, one of the partners to leave in January and by, by the first of May, the other two partners were gone as were another six or seven people like it, there was a there was wow. a period like like in april late march or or uh april of that year where it was just like somebody was resigning every week and it was just 
was heartbreaking. It was awful. It was terrifying. We had just committed to a you know, a 5,000 square foot office that was intended to get us to a 30 person team. And, you know, that was not a small investment. Um, So, you know, I, yeah, I'll stop there. I'm sure you have a bunch of questions, but um, in the end, I feel like, you know, in, in almost every area of life, parenting, my relationship with my wife, my professional relationships, my friendships, there's, there's, you always kind of reach this. Um, anytime there are bumps in the road, and there always will be, you always mm. confront this question: like, would I rather be right or would I rather be happy? And mm. and I chose being right, and I think that was my, that was the frame of mind that I brought to firm ownership to firm growth to being a good recruiter to being all you know uh, lots of great stuff but i chose right over being happy and that's the simplest way to say it and and when you choose that you're alienating people full stop you're going to hurt a relationship and um which is fine if those relationships are not important to you but as a business owner I would argue that they should be central, like those relationships and the depth and quality of the the relationships that you have with your people, your team members, that should be central to your life. Um, And that will yield happiness and, and I believe will also yield growth. Did you know that fewer than 1% of recruitment business owners ever achieve an exit? The good news is that it's absolutely achievable if you know how. That know-how and proven track record is exactly what Recruitment Entrepreneur provides. They're the number one investor in recruitment startups and scale-ups globally. James Kahn and his team have done this many times before. In fact, they've backed 45 businesses already and they're only just getting started. Based in London, they've now launched in the USA and many other countries around the world They're looking to partner with ambitious recruiters who want to start, scale, and sell their recruitment business. They provide the funding, mentoring, advice, and support you need to become one of the top 1% who successfully exit their recruitment business. To learn more about Recruitment Entrepreneur in the USA or anywhere globally, go to recruitmentcoach.com forward slash VC. That's VC as in venture capital. Book a call with one of their investment directors And be sure to tell them you were referred by Mark Whitby and the Resilient Recruiter podcast. Once again, visit recruitmentcoach.com forward slash VC. Mark, first of all, thank you so much for opening up about what must have just been a very traumatic and stressful um, chapter in the the business and also in your your life, Um, because I think... And and I really respect and appreciate you for doing that. Um, I I think that's going to be so relatable to people because everyone has challenges, roadblocks, makes mistakes, screws things up, and to hear that you're not perfect, uh, even though you're very successful, I think actually will make people feel better about their own failings which we all we all have as human beings um i 
I don't really understand though, like what happened here because you seem like such an easy guy to get along with and um, you hired these folks, right? So I'm assuming you hired them because there was values in common. There was, you had created a culture where, you know, you attracted certain types of folks who, you know, at, at, so they, I, I just don't, I'm, help me understand where the, where things went wrong. You said like you were inflexible, but were they just to asking for more commission or like, what was the, what was the breaking point in the, in the relationship? Um, commission, more commission came. What was one of the pieces of that first conversation? Um, it wasn't the only piece. Um, it wasn't the only piece. And, and, you know, I, I mean, if you're dealing with producers, you're going to confront questions about commissions all the time. Absolutely. I feel like it's on us as owners to like show that we are earning our commissions, like our cut, right? It's not a it's, it's not an insignificant cut. Um, in most cases, especially if you're, you know, building a, a growth, uh, a growing organization without outside capital. You're self-funding your growth. Um, you need to maintain some some decent margins. And for good producers, yes. um, they're going to look at that and say, "Well, you know, what, Phillips? What are you doing to to earn, you know, your fifty percent or your sixty percent or whatever?" Um, so commissions were a part of it, but but really. I feel like the emotional piece is was a, I mean, you can navigate those commission conversations. You can navigate questions of fairness and unfairness and who got what and when they got it and who's got, you know, who got the house account, but they're getting paid for, you know, as if it were their own. Like there's just always that stuff. And if you are navigating that with emotional intelligence, like you can navigate anything if you are rigid. Um, and I'm not saying like, I'm not saying that like the, the converse of rigidity is not just everybody gets what they want and you just say yes to everything. That's not the exactly. opposite of that. Yeah. But, but there is a way, I mean, just think of like parenting, right? I mean, most of, most, firm owners probably have kids. You know, most firm owners probably had a career for some number of years as recruiters and they have some exposure to parenting either with their own kids or with people on their team. Yeah. You, we all know that like my way or the highway messaging and postures with kids just yields alienated <laughs> alienated kids like it's just it my wife is like the best example of that and and a constant reminder to me my my three boys are all uh out of the house at this point we're we're fairly new empty nesters but as they were growing up and especially when they were teenagers and they were button heads with with dad with a competitive you know outcome oriented dad like she would just constantly remind me like, Mark, you have to keep the relationship first. Like the relationship right. first, relationship first should be your guiding light. And not everybody is gonna, you know, 
need the same support. Every, not everybody's going to need the same um, accountability. Not everybody's going to need um, the same. If you, Your only way of sort of determining what the needs are and what your best offering to them is, is what's, you know, the relation is having the relationship first. So I hope mm. that I'm not being too vague in an answer to your question, but, but really like the relationship in my mind, when I think about that time, my relationship with those three partners, my relationship with the team members that rolled up to them mm-hmm. was not first. And so mm-hmm. consequently, like it's, you know, it's a, it's a house of cards. So you could mm-hmm. look operationally and say, well, this happened and that happened. You could look, uh, you could look uh, from a business perspective and probably find other antecedents. But, you know, in the end, the way that I think about it is it wasn't relationship first. And I will just, you know, I, I, I sort of blew past one comment about my drinking. Um, I had moments in my life where I was, where I was a big partier. When I talk about drinking a lot, I was I was not partying as as a as a search for the, you know back in 2018 I was not partying I was not like out at the bar I was not like the drinker that you see in movies but really at a physical biological level I was probably hungover every day of the week like I was drinking you know a bottle of wine a night which is a lot wow. so it was and like a stress release more totally Totally, but also which created an enormous biological stress mm. and the psychological sort of impact of that was um, what I what, what a therapist called um, dysregulated behavior. And I had never really heard of that before. We talked a lot through that. It took me a while to sort of wrap my head around what a, what a dysregulated state is and what a regulated state is. And, you know, just to bring it back to the parenting um, sort of thread, like a dysregulated state is having an argument with my kid. You know, a regulated state is seek, is being curious and seeking to understand first and keeping the relationship first. And I think very, you know, I'm using some shorthand there, but you can very, very easily sort of just at a, at a like gut level understand like what's how different those two postures are. And I really believe that, like, I, I really believe that I was hungover every day of the week for multiple years, and that that led to dysregulated relationships with my team. Um, I'm not. I am not somebody who says nobody should drink. I'm not somebody who says sobriety is for everybody. But but I needed a pattern, a really big pattern interrupt. Um, and that came, that came for me, uh, first with, uh, tobacco, uh, in earlier in 2019 and then December 16th of 2019 was my last drink of alcohol. Um, so coming up on three, three years, I guess, uh, uh, alcohol free. Huge. Wow. That's incredible, Mark. Thank you. Thank you. Really, the big the big benefit is I can like engage in these stressful situations in my family, um, out in the world with politics, uh, or with my team. Uh, I can do so in in a in a much more 
consistently present way. Not that I don't have moments of dysregulation, but it's not just, it, it, it's not the like foundation of my emo- emotional engagement with life. And building a firm is stressful. Like it, there's no way around that. Recruiting is stressful. Um, yeah. So, um, does that help Mark, sort of shed um, some light on what happened? Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> what I admire is you're taking ownership and taking responsibility for, you know, the fractures that, uh, that occurred and, and led to the sort of, um, you know, uh, unforeseen downsizing of the, of the business, which is ultimately empowering, right? Because if you blame other people, then you have no control. You, if you take responsibility, then now you can do something to change and to produce a different outcome. So, um, so I think that's great in your defense though. Um, there is a, inherent problem, I believe, with the business model of hiring and seeking to um, create big billers. And Mm. what I mean by that is um, that the, 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 the big biller persona, and I'm not, I don't want to generalize and lump everyone together, uh, but often is more self-ish rather than thinking about others, thinking about team, thinking about the company and doesn't necessarily play nicely with others and, 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 um, aren't necessarily don't make good leaders necessarily. And, um, so in building a recruiting business, I would always and, and again, I've not done it, but based on having worked with hundreds of firm owners who have, um, you want to recruit people who have the right mindset, values, attitudes, and potential abilities, first and foremost, rather than necessarily all being overly obsessed with the cult of big billers. Um yep. And, and especially because it then, if you're a significant portion of your revenue is reliant on a small number of people, that's a huge risk, right? And, um, it also means that if, from an integrity point of view, if someone, if you know, someone is not right for the business or you don't, uh, uh, maybe they're not treating fellow team members right, or maybe they're, pushing the, they always want more commission or whatever, uh, and they're a prima donna or, or whatever, then as the owner, if they, if they're bringing in a huge percentage of the revenue, it puts you in a really difficult spot where you have to decide like for the good of the business, this person needs to exit, but that is really going to hurt. And like I say, I'm of course we want everyone to do their best and to make good money. Um, but you know, I would rather have a business with, you know, uh, twenty average producers and a couple of you know big billers, rather than five super billers. D- does that make sense? Hundred percent. And I'm I'm so glad you kind of teased that um, because you know you know if we if I think and I do think about my business, you know, version one and version two, right? Version version one. Uh, imploded in 2019, and we've start we started building um, uh, started building version two in late 2019. Um, 
we are not version one was a hundred percent focused on attracting and motivating big billers. And I was good at it. Um, you know, I could hang and they, I think looked at me as a kindred spirit, as a, as a kindred mm. big biller. Um, yes. we are consciously avoiding. It's not that I don't want people to make money to your point. Yes. I do. Um, but we are, we have structured things from, we pay high salaries now. We do not, and I do not pay massive commissions like the traditional, you know, 35, 40, 50% sort of build up on a, on a really low draw where you've got a leverage salesperson. That's really what you want. I don't want that. Yeah. Um, yeah. I want people that feel good about their lives. We have now, uh, my team. I think we have three young parents, four young, no, four parents of very young children on our, on our team right now, five. Um, you know, you know what that means. That means kids are sick. That means doctor's appointments. That means school stuff. That means, you know, a whole host of things that most big billers just ignore or they, you know, they have a, a spouse that just takes care of that stuff and they're really not engaged in their personal lives. We are really focused on supporting people with a great benefits plan with a good salary, um, with a good living, you know, like I would rather, to your point, I would rather have 10 people making 120, $150,000 a year than three people making $400,000 a year. Exactly. And I used to really like just sell that big, that big biller story all day long. It's really refreshing not to. Honestly. Yeah. So, and the other thing that we did is um, as a part of the rebuild of version two, we went through that EOS, um, you know, VTO process, I think it's called. And our first core value is protect the team. Nice. Love and it. that means so many things, like really when you like play it out, uh, it, it means so many different things, so many more things even than when Katie and I came up with that as a core value. But we really intentionally wanted to rebuild the firm with people who are cool <laughs> with each other. And it's we do oh, not want you know, the most competitive, you know, uh, it, it, I, I, we, this job is competitive enough. Yeah. Um, this, you know, we lose deals all the time. Recruiters lose deals all the time. Like, like there's people take that. I don't, I don't need to remind them of that. I don't need to be juicing them. I really felt like, honestly, the, when we looked back, I felt like the, the lifespan of a top producer of a top, a big biller was about three years. It's just, it's unsustainable. And, you know, I see that dynamic in, at play in, in other parts of my life. I'm a big trail runner and I ran cool. my first hundred mile race this last year. And whoa, that's you see, a long way. It is. You see, and I didn't fi <laughs> I finished either. I, I, I don't want to over, uh, oversell that, but I, I dropped out at 62 miles, um, which is, which is great. That's not what I, not, not, not what I wanted. But like in the world of like trail running and ultra running, there are so many stories about these people um, that just, you know, that burned really bright for 
three, four, five years. And then they got injury after injury after injury after injury. There's so many sort of biological supports for having a more measured, sustainable approach to life and to business. And um, so I, I'm so glad you brought that up. I probably have gone on too much about it, but the 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 big biller, again, I I I will celebrate big billing, but I am not architecting my firm around a big biller ever again. Absolutely. That's such a great insight. Um, just as a side note, do you listen to the Rich Roll podcast by any chance? I do. I love Rich Roll. He's okay. a big one. And he right, also cool. like, he talks a lot about sobriety and the role of sobriety yeah. in his life. And he lives near me. Um, uh, oh, he actually, cool. he runs in the Santa Monica mountains. Um, yeah. Big uh, which Sur is kind or of, something. Is that right? Uh, no, further South. He's in yeah. Malibu. Oh, okay. In fact, I have a, I have a quote on my desk uh, yeah. from Rich Rule that I, I pulled out of. It says, uh, you have to seize the few identifiable moments that can change everything, but change requires rigor, specificity, and accountability. <laughs> so. Like it. Fantastic. Yeah, yeah he's got, his book is good as well, um, Finding yep. Ultra. Um, yep. Is there anything else that you're doing differently in the 2.0 version of the firm that um, based on your, you know, what you've learned doing it the first time around? Um, I have somebody who's response, whose job it is. She's, she's a consultant, but she works with us about half time. Her job is to train people. That always Great. kind of fell to me and I, and I would get pulled in multiple different directions and just didn't really do good didn't offer good consistent uh support so i guess that kind of falls under that theme of of the katie discussion that i had which is just outsource constantly look for things to outsource um because that's the way all of our clients build their businesses of course it is yeah they don't try and do absolutely everything themselves right yeah yeah you can't it's, scale that way yeah so it's so it's so true so i think like like just thinking about like, like everybody says, well, recruiting is really different. I don't think it has to be that different. And it's only that different if you're an owner who just thinks they know everything and you need to be, you know, sort of in everybody's business 24-7. Um, but if you really can think about like how, how scaling businesses are built, it's through specialties, right? Um, so we have, we have, uh, so the, but the, we always had dedicated research um, and we do now again, but the dedicated training is new. Um, I hired a full-time marketer this year and she ended up cool. moving over into production just because she was really good at it. But um, Interesting. that's another example of, of just saying, hey, there's, here's this capability that our business needs to grow and let's hire around it. Um, right. We're, we're doing a, our annual planning meeting, um, in a couple of weeks. So I assume that there will be more manifestations of that principle, just, you know, having divisions of labor, there'll be more manifestations about that in our budget and our hiring plan for next year. But I don't, I don't know yet what they are. Um, I think, um, yeah, I, it, you got to have some people in your in your business that are operationally minded and that can document yeah. that stuff, right? So we've we've totally. tried to be really good about having SOPs 
for everything. And I'm terrible at following SOPs, but I'm good at like, <laughs> I, I will be held accountable to them. You know, if somebody says, well, you know, we just wrote that last week, then I'm like, oh shoot, I needed to pay more attention there, you know? Um, and I think the high, so I think the, the other part of, uh, that hypothesis playing out in version two is, is tied back to promoting Katie to run our business. Like we're, we just had a, we just had a $500,000 quarter, which is our biggest quarter in version two. So that's a 2 million annual run rate. My hypothesis is that this industry is probably about a, probably about a $5 million business. But I think that all the tools are in place and the talent is in place to get from two to five. And so like, so I'm stepping out, like I'm stepping out, I'm giving Katie the, the responsibility, the accountability. Um, I'm, I will be a very active board member and mentor to her. Um, but I really think our education technology business, you know, as it's defined now, is has has everything it needs to to grow and really my my big job is to get out of the way um and then you know and now i'm pivoting or will pivot you know fully january 1st to evaluating new markets looking at new specialties and really kind of playing a a more strategic growth role for the firm um that's so cool mark um so listen, some of the stuff we're talking about in terms of scaling, our listeners might be interested. We have a uh, webinar that Joel and I hosted called uh, How to Build an Eight-Figure Recruitment Business That Runs Without You. And we go into our nine pillars of a scalable recruitment business. So if anyone listening wants to watch that webinar or download slides, it's recruitmentcoach.com forward slash scale. And Mark, I'll send it to you as well, just in case you're interested. It's um, it's so kind of our version of EOS, like for specifically for recruiting firms. So uh, you'll recognize like some. We've got a a, um, a flywheel uh, with nine pillars. They're they're different to the EOS ones, but uh, it just gives you that structured way of thinking about. Well, these are the drivers of building a business, and I need yeah. to be mindful of each one of these nine dimensions and then there's kind of a you know action plan for for each of those um each of those pillars so um mark thank you so much i've loved uh getting to meet you and uh it was a really rich conversation i i appreciate you doing this absolutely uh i i appreciate the opportunity and it's it's always good to sort of have a have a chance to sort of reflect on on things and sort of tell the story again and um, I have a couple takeaways that I'll uh, I'll take back into my own practice and uh, into my team. I'm I can't wait to to review that um, uh, those nine pillars that you put together and and I'm um, I'm so grateful for the interest and for the uh, for the great conversation and and um, um, I, thank you, thank you, Mark. Uh, I'm grateful as well. And uh, let's keep in touch. All right, sounds good. Take care, Mark. Thank you so much for listening to The Resilient Recruiter. If you've enjoyed the show, the best way you can show your support is to click that subscribe button. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time.